that this is a unique Sunday for more than one reason. We not only have the privilege of welcoming them into the membership here, into the formal body of the church, uh, but likewise, we are also going to witness a baptism today. And I, I have a bit of an extended introduction to this because uh, I have to take you a little bit further back to when I first uh, found that this church was looking for a pastor. And the unique thing about this church was that as it was calling a pastor, it required a pastor to accept both infant and believer's baptism. And we'll get into exactly what that means in a minute. And that was so unique to me. Uh, I, I'd never heard of a church attempting to do that. And uh, I was excited for it. And um, I continue to be excited for it. Uh, but it, was, it amazed me how quickly after I got here that suddenly there was an infant baptism that was wanting to be had. Uh, and, and I thought maybe I was going to have a little bit more time to brace myself, if you will. Uh, but it happened quickly. And so here's what I decided to do. Just because we do have a bit of a mixed audience in this church and we have people who come from a baptistic background, I think it's extremely important today that before we engage in this ceremony that we get on the same page and, and understand exactly what's happening here. And I think that by doing this, we are not going to actually find further disunity, but I think that we will actually be able to gather in more unity after we briefly take the time in our sermon today to examine what exactly is happening here. And so let me just briefly be very upfront with what I want to accomplish in today's sermon. This is the purpose of this sermon is to inform us and gather us around points of unity. Okay? I'm not here to debate one side or the other. I'm not here to tear down one side or the other. I'm not here to lift one side up so that I can sort of subtly cut its legs off. I'm not here telling you you should believe one side or the other. I want to be very upfront. The purpose of this is it's, it's, it's kind of has the Baptists a little bit more in mind is I want us to make sure that we know exactly what's happening and see that there's nothing to be afraid of. I want us to gather around the unity that we do have when it comes to baptism and I want us to see that there is much unity to be had. And, and this is not, let me also say, this is not going to be an exhaustive sermon on the whole baptism debate. That's been happening for a long time. We are not going to cover every issue and every detail. I promise you, uh, there will be things that you're going to wish that I maybe would have said or wish I would have gone down that road and we just simply don't have time for. But I think this will be a, a, the, a Baptist's best effort at fairly presenting the, the foundational reason for Presbyterian baptism. And I, I, I would encourage the Presbyterian brothers and sisters that we have in here, uh, after the sermon, you are free to uh, critique the job that I've done, but I do believe that I'm going to present a fair and biblical view of your position out of a sign of my love and respect for you. But before we talk about sort of the, the two issues in front of us, I, I want us to understand right from the front what's not happening today. This is what's not happening at Redeemer Christian Fellowship. If you were to survey baptismal ideas throughout Christendom, they generally all fall into three categories. There's what we call baptismal regeneration, covenantal baptism, and believer's baptism. Uh, academically, there's only three categories. And then there's some different stripes within those categories. I am going to branch it into four. 
So this is just for educational purposes. Let me just say, I'm going to briefly present to you four different positions. If you were to bring my four out into the public, you might get scrutinized because they would say, well, two of those really belong under the same roof, but I don't think they do. So I just want to be upfront. I'm going to give you four different views of baptism, and two of them are off the table. Two of them are not what we're talking about here. The first one is what I'm going to call, rather than calling it baptismal regeneration, I'm going to call it baptismal justification. Baptismal justification. There are religions and people out there who essentially believe that your baptism justifies you before a holy God. That you were born into sin, that you stand before God with sin that needs to be dealt with, and the way God forgives you is by your baptism. This is most popular in Roman, in Roman Catholicism. So, for example, just a few quotes from the Catholic Catechism. The Lord himself affirms that baptism is altogether necessary for salvation. Baptism is necessary for salvation for those to whom the gospel has been proclaimed and who have had the possibility of asking for the sacrament. The church does not know of any other means other than baptism that assures entry into the eternal beatitude. Another quote, By baptism all sins are forgiven. Original sin and all personal sins, as well as all punishment for sin. Baptism is birth into the new life in Christ. In accordance with the Lord's will, it is necessary for salvation as the church is herself, which we enter by baptism. And just one last one. The fruit of baptism or baptismal grace is a rich reality that includes forgiveness of original sin and all personal sins, birth into the new life by which man becomes an adoptive son of the Father, a member of Christ, and a temple of the Holy Spirit. So it's, they belabored this point. It's pretty crystal clear. Baptism is your forgiveness. Baptism is how you are made right before a holy God. Nobody in this church believes that. That's not on the table today. And we're going to come back to that at the end. I'm going to then define baptismal regeneration, a second view, a bit more narrowly. And this is held, uh, like, for example, Church of Christ. If you know people, Church of Christ, they're more Roman Catholic in their view of baptism, that it's a saving effect. Baptismal regeneration is, is loosely held by most Lutherans. Now, I need to be careful here because Lutheranism itself is a bit divided, and I'm not going to pretend to be a scholar on the man, Martin Luther, nor on Lutheranism itself. So, what I'm saying here is what I think is a generally held position among Lutherans. You might know some Lutherans who take issue with this. I don't think that I've been unfair. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to grant that maybe some Lutherans see it differently. Um, but I think this is a, a pretty general, uh, gen widely held belief among Lutherans. And I think there's good evidence that Martin Luther held this view before he died. And that was this. L Luther struggled with this concept of faith alone versus what he saw the importance of baptism being. So Luther began the whole Protestant Reformation on this foundation that we are justified by God, not by works, but by faith but then he would turn around and say, well, you have to be baptized to be saved. And so obviously there's this natural question, so how do, we, how, how do we put these two pieces together? Works, no works except the work of baptism. How does it work together? And so uh, Luther seemed to land, and there's a whole scholarly debate on what Luther actually believed, but he seemed to land at the end of his life in what I'm calling baptismal regeneration, which is essentially this, that baptism is not the work that is justifying you. But baptism is miraculously creating the faith within you that then justifies you. So when you're baptized, God uses that baptism to regenerate your heart and cause you to believe. And then on the basis of your faith, you've now been justified. 
So you see the difference. Roman Catholicism doesn't believe in sola fide. They don't believe in faith alone. They do not believe that faith in Christ is sufficient to save you. So they have no problem saying, yeah, baptism saves you because faith is not enough and that's a public belief of theirs. But Luther needed to believe that faith was sufficient to justify you, but he also saw baptism being necessary for salvation. So I think that's how this view formed. Again, just to reiterate it, it's that when you are baptized, your soul and spirit by the power of God are being regenerated and you are being brought to faith. And then once you have that faith, you are then justified on the basis of faith. So it's a way that we can still say faith alone is justifying you, but you have to be baptized. Uh, For example, one Lutheran confession online says this, we believe that baptism is one of the miraculous means of grace. Another is God's word as it is written or spoken. Baptism is a miraculous means of grace through which God creates and or strengthens the gift of faith in a person's heart. Terms the Bible uses to talk about the beginning of faith include conversion and regeneration. Although we do not claim to understand fully how this happens, we believe that when an infant is baptized, God creates faith in the heart of that infant. So if you were to ask Martin Luther, is baptism necessary for salvation? His answer would unequivocally be yes, but it would be modified because he would still admit, well, there are, if you're an adult and you come to faith, you're still justified. So it's kind of a both for him. And the idea again being that faith alone justifies, but in, in, in the case of the infant, the baptism is what gives you your faith. That is also not happening here. So those two views I want us just to, to inform and dismiss. Nobody believes that any infant is going to be saved by their baptism today. Nobody believes that any infant is going to be given miraculous faith through their baptism today. That's not what's happening here. So we can take a little sigh of relief. So what it really boils down to in this very American debate that we have here is what I'm calling the difference between covenantal baptism and believer's baptism. Covenantal baptism and believer's baptism. This is more formally known as paedo-baptism versus credo-baptism. But the reason I I want to be more specific is because all the views we just discussed are technically forms of paedo-baptism. What is paedo-baptism? It means child baptism, infant baptism. That word paedo, right, as it sounds familiar, it comes words like, for example, pediatrics. What What does a pediatrician do? He works with children, right? So pedo, pedo equals child and baptism, infant baptism. The other view, the Baptist view, is commonly referred to as credo baptism. What does the word credo sound like? It sounds like the word creed. Right? That's where it comes from. It's the Greek prefix for a statement of faith, for an I believe statement. So a credo baptism is essentially an I believe baptism. It's a baptism where you have to have a creed before you can be baptized. So that's why that form of baptism is that someone has to come to faith in Christ before they're baptized. So one view baptizes only adults, but the way adult is defined is just a credible confession of faith. Sometimes that can still be very young children. Um, But one is believer's baptism. And the one we're going to focus most of our time on, because that's the baptism in front of us, is what I am calling covenantal baptism. This is a covenantal baptism. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to present the case as best as I know it from a covenantal perspective. And again, not debate or tear down, but just lightly compare to the other side so we can just understand a little bit better what's, what's happening here and the, the things that our church finds unity on and, and lovingly disagrees on. And it all begins to understand our differences. And when I say our, I don't just mean our church. I just mean Christendom here in America. <laughs> 
and around the world. To understand these differences, if you, if you want to understand the difference between why Presbyterians baptize babies and why Baptists don't, if you start with baptism, you're already on the wrong foot. You've started, on the wrong, you've started at the wrong place. This is not ultimately a debate about baptism. That's the fruit of the debate, but this is, not a, this is not a disagreement on baptism. This is actually a disagreement on the nature of the new covenant. And here's what I mean by that to set the stage, and then we're going to open our Bibles. And how many of you, did any of you ever grow up in a church where you did sword drills? Anybody ever heard of that? What's a sword drill? What was that? Say that nice and loud. They say what first you look when you see how fast you yeah, so it's, it's, it's a way to sort of teach kids where verses are and where books of the Bible are. So you'd say like, everyone on the count of three, turn to Exodus chapter one, and then whoever gets there the fastest gets like a sucker or something. We're kind of going to be doing that today. We, no suckers though. I, my wife put candies out in my office, so feel free to take any of those. But uh, we're going to be bouncing all over the place, so I hope, I hope you're ready. It's going to be a lot of fun. But, bef- but just to set the table a little bit more before we dive in. Back to this issue, the biggest thing we have to understand is the difference in what we believe are the natures of the covenant. So every Christian affirms two things. Every Christian affirms two things. They affirm that the new covenant is in fact new. Therefore, it has some differences from the older covenants that we see in scripture. There's new covenant and old covenant are not exactly the same. There's differences. We all agree. But what we also agree on is there are some similarities. There are some things that are still the same today that were the same back then. So everyone agrees there's some differences and some similarities. In the theological world, we call this continuity and discontinuity. Covenantal continuity, covenantal discontinuity. Essentially saying what, there are differences between the old and new covenants and there are similarities. And really the heart of this debate is that one side sees the new covenant as being a little bit more like the old covenant than the other side sees it as being. Baptists see the new covenant as being much, much different than the old, as Presbyterians find a little bit more harmony. But the heart of this debate, the soul of this debate, is the nature of the new covenant. So it's really not about baptism, it's about covenantal relationships. And so here's what I want us to look at. We're going to look at three areas of slight disagreement, and then we're going to conclude with three areas of total agreement. To begin our understanding of, of paedo-baptism, covenantal baptism, we need to begin with the Abrahamic covenant. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis 17, verses 1 through 7. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. 
I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So the Abrahamic covenant begins, and it is not just a covenant between God and Abraham. It is a covenant between God and Abraham and all his children. So the Abrahamic covenant, one was essentially born into that covenant. Because God promised to make a covenant with his descendants. God promised to be the God of his future generations. So just by nature of being born with certain parents, you had entered a covenant with God. God was now your God. You were now a child of his. You were born into the Abrahamic covenant. And we see this Abrahamic principle is connected directly to the old covenant through Moses as well. Just by nature of being born to a certain family made you part of the covenant whether you grew up to like that or not. You were part of the covenant just by nature of being born. And so here's where, and this is all a point of agreement so far. And here's where this gets really important. So what that means is that you could be in the covenant and not love the God of that covenant. You could hate, the, you could hate with all your heart and soul the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but you were still in covenant with him whether you liked it or not. So your covenant status was not dependent upon your love for God. It was dependent upon who your parents were. You were born into that covenant. And this is the whole theme of the Old Testament. If you read through the Old Testament scriptures, what you will find is a disobedient, rebellious Jewish people. But never once did that mean that they were not in a legitimate covenant with God. Even though they didn't love him, they weren't worshiping him, they weren't following him, they were still part of that covenant. A somewhat gruesome example would be like this. Don't expect this to happen. But let's just say tomorrow I go bonkers and I abandon my wife, and I flee Roswell, and I start dating another woman. I would be in grave sin. I would be in terrible sin. And I would be expressing hatred for my wife. But she would still be my wife. The state would still say, no, you guys have a contractual obligation that has not been severed. So I don't care how sinful or horrible of a person you are, you are still in a legitimate covenant contract with this woman. Cheating on her does not make me an anti-husband, it just makes me a bad one. But that act didn't sever our covenant relationship. So Israel could disobey all they want. They could hate God and live in sin all they want. But that did not sever the covenant that was made to them. So here's the key. In the Old Testament, both according to the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenants, you could be an unbeliever and still be a covenant member. That's the key. And everyone agrees with that. Then the debate becomes, well, what about the new covenant? Is it possible to be an unbelieving new covenant member just like we could be unbelieving old covenant members? One side says yes, one side says no. That's the heart of this debate. Is it possible to be in the new covenant and not be a regenerate, regenerated, converted believer? 
That's the heart of this debate. The Presbyterian side says this is one area where the new covenant has some similarity to the old. You can be in this covenant and still be against God the same way in the old covenant you could be in that covenant and be against God. Here's why they say that. Keep your marker in Genesis 17 because we are going to come back. But turn to Acts chapter 2. Remember, and as we turn here, remember the words. Remember the language, the verbiage that God used when he made that Abrahamic covenant to Abraham. Acts chapter 2. So let me just set the stage. Pentecost has already happened. Jesus has died, been buried, rose again, resurrected, and ascended. And the Holy Spirit has now come, come upon God's people. And Peter stands up in front of this amazing, uh, a bunch of people from all over the world were brought to this Jewish festival. And so Peter and the other apostles are preaching in tongues. And, and so here's why I say all this, not just for context, so we can know that clearly the new covenant is in, is, is in act now. Right? This is clearly New Covenant era. The gospel has already happened. Christ has ascended. The Holy Spirit's been poured out. There's no debate that Acts chapter 2 is still Old Covenant. We're still waiting for the new to come. No. The gospel's happened. Christ has come. The Spirit's been poured out. This is New Covenant members preaching to people. That's important. And after Peter preaches this amazing sermon about how Christ fulfilled all prophecy, he is the Messiah, he did die for sins, and you're accountable to God for your sin, he preaches this amazing sermon, and then look at what happens in verse 37 of Acts chapter 2. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children. Sound familiar? That's what God told Abraham. The promise is for you and for your children. But the issue is that Peter is not talking about the Old Covenant. He's not talking about the Abrahamic covenant per se. Peter is preaching to them new covenant realities. And one of the things that Peter says about the new covenant is that this covenant is not just for you. It's for your children. Just like God said to Abraham, for the promises for you and your children and all who are far off, meaning Gentiles, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So the covenantal reading of this is that Peter is announcing the same words over the new covenant that God announced over the Abrahamic covenant, which is, this is not just for you, but it's for your children as well. The Baptistic reading of this would just simply say that Peter was trying to include Jew and Gentile. That he, his point was, the, this new covenant is for Jews, and it's also for Gentiles, anyone whom God calls to himself. So Baptists don't see this as being sort of a, a recitation of the Abrahamic formula, if you will. But that is the covenantal view, that Peter here has repeated the same structure of the covenant that God gave to Abraham. And this is why we see something like, stay in the book of Acts and go to Acts chapter 16. This is why we see things like what they call household baptisms. 
household baptisms. Acts chapter 16. There's, there's more than one example of this, but we're just going to look at one for time's sake. Look at verses 14 through 15. As Luke wrote the book of Acts and he's recounting the stories from him and his companions and their missionary journeys, he said, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Theatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul and after she was baptized and her whole household as well. So the covenantal reading of this is, look, one person gets saved and then the whole household gets baptized. The covenantal reading is that Lydia, essentially, she didn't save the rest of her family, but she somehow entered them into the covenant. When, she, when her heart was opened up to what Paul was preaching and she entered into the new covenant, it now was incumbent upon Paul to baptize her entire household. And one is leads to speculate, maybe there were even infants in this household. So we see a household baptism. A household is baptized on the basis of one person's faith. And you say, well, I, I didn't grow up believing that. That sounds ridiculous to me. Well, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. First Corinthians chapter 7. While you flip there, here's what Paul's dealing with here. And there's going to be an important principle that comes out. Paul's dealing with this unfortunately sticky situation where what happens when you go into the world with the gospel and people are coming to faith, unfortunately and naturally, sometimes a married couple hears the gospel, but only one of them responds. So what do we do? What do we do? And this was especially prominent for women because we see in the book of Acts that women were coming to the faith at a much higher rate than men. So a common first century scenario is the gospel is proclaimed and a husband says, yeah, I don't know, whatever, I don't want to waste my time with that. And a woman repents and believes and turns to Christ. Now what do we do? You are now married to an unbeliever. Can you imagine how difficult that would be to raise children with someone who doesn't know Jesus? Your worldviews are different. Your opinions are now different. Your lifestyles are now different. How do we do this? So it was a pretty natural inclination for the Christians to say, get divorced. You can't do this. What does light have in common with darkness? This won't work. You should get divorced. But more than that, it would have been incumbent upon the Jewish Christians to definitely think that because there was this mosaic principle established all throughout the Old Testament that if you touch something unclean, it made you unclean. How can I have intimacy with an unbeliever, does that not make me unclean? Doesn't the unbeliever's presence in this marriage, in this family, make our whole family filthy? No, you need to separate from what is unclean and you need to go be with someone that is clean. And Paul answers this and says, no way. No way. That is not how you are to handle it. Look at chapter 7, specifically verse 14. And here's why. Or let's begin in verse 13. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Now why? For the unbelieving husband is made holy. The unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are 
holy. That's an interesting phrase. And what's Paul saying? Paul's saying that just having one legitimate believer in that family purifies the rest. So if, if one person is a Christian, the child from that union is, as the ESV puts it, holy or clean. What, what does that mean? Does that mean that if, if I'm an unbeliever and I marry someone, they automatically get saved? No. Cleanliness in the Old Testament was not an issue of salvation. But here's what's interesting. That word holy there, it's the Greek word hagios. And it's used over 50 times in the New Testament toward other people and it's rendered there as saint. Saint. Sometimes it's used other places where like it's like the holy city Jerusalem or the Holy Spirit but when it's used of people it's most often rendered as saint. So there's a legitimate translational argument to be made here that what Paul is saying is that if the husband is a believer or the wife is a believer the child is a saint. So that's why this covenantal view comes together and now they're saying, see, we've got household baptisms because one woman got saved so she made the rest of her family clean and so all of this boils down to essentially this issue. The covenantal view says the new covenant is like the old. You can be in the new covenant but not be a believer. And the way you get into the new covenant is by being born to a Christian parent who has made you clean. So, to put the piece together, essentially, if you were born to Christian parents, you are in the new covenant. You are part of the new covenant. Your faith has not been changed. You haven't been saved salvifically. But just like in the Old Testament, they were part of the covenant even though they weren't saved. The ones that were saved, Paul calls them the remnant. The, the minority of Jews were actually saved, but all of them were in the covenant. And so the argument is that you can be in the covenant and not be a believer. And that's where the debate is. Because Baptists would not agree with that. Baptists would say, Jeremiah 31, when it prophesies the new covenant, it says, I shall be their God, they shall be my people, all of them shall know me from the least to the grace, I will be their God, I will forgive their sins, I will remember their iniquities no more. And Baptists say things like, the book of Hebrews says that if you're in the new covenant, Christ is your mediator, and he mediates to the uttermost perfectly. Christ cannot fail to save you. So Baptists essentially say, if you're in the new covenant, you have to be saved. You cannot be in the new covenant if you're an unbeliever. They would argue that's something that the new covenant is different from the old. You cannot be an unbelieving New Covenant member because what makes the New Covenant better than the old, what makes Christ a better mediator than Moses and better than Abraham is that Christ guarantees your salvation. So this is the, the heart and soul of the debate. That does being a New Covenant member guarantee your salvation? That's the heart and soul of the debate. Now the question arises then, well then how does baptism actually work into all of this? So, okay, okay, I get it. It's about covenant and covenant relationships. So how does baptism work into all this? Well, go back to Genesis 17. Genesis 17, after Abraham entered into covenant with God, he was given a sign of the covenant. A sign of the covenant. Genesis 17, beginning in verse 8. Or, forgive me, we read verse 8, beginning in verse 9. 
So after that covenant was made, and God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people, for he has broken my covenant. So circumcision... God says explicitly here, was a sign of the covenant. Circumcision was not your entrance into the covenant. It was a sign that you were in it. It was, it was basically your ID badge, if you will. I am a covenant child of God and I can prove it because I have the sign of the covenant. So both the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenant had a sign, something that you did to covenant members. And since children were born in the covenant, you did them to children right? These kids were being circumcised at eight days old. These are infants, but they were legitimate covenant members. Therefore, they deserved the sign of the covenant. And the covenantal view argues that the new covenant has a sign as well. The new covenant has circumcision. It's just something different now. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, let's look at verses just 11 and 12. The context here is we're, we're speaking about Christ, as you can see clearly from verse 8. And it says, In him, in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through the faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. So the covenantal reading sees here in Colossians a direct connection between circumcision being a type for baptism. That every new covenant believer here is in fact circumcised and it happens at baptism. You were buried with him in baptism, raised with him. So there's a direct connection made here between the sign of the old covenant and the sign of the new covenant. So the covenantal view sees essentially baptism could be stated this way. It's the new covenant circumcision. In the old covenant, you had a child born into the covenant, give them the sign. In the new covenant, you have a child born into the new covenant, give them a sign. So that's how baptism ultimately plays now in to this uh, covenantal understanding is that if you're in the covenant, you need a sign. And since children are born into the covenant, they need a sign. So baptize those babies. And this, like I said, that's why ultimately the debate goes back to the covenant because a Baptist would essentially say, I agree. I agree 100% that baptism is a sign of being united to Christ. It's a sign of dying to Christ and being raised with Christ. And a, but a Baptist would say, children haven't done that. So the sign doesn't fit for them because they have not, as the text says, been buried with Christ and risen with Christ. So you see how ultimately this all goes back to what is the nature of the child born into that Christian home. 
And the Baptists would say, no, this doesn't apply to them because they haven't been united to Christ. But the covenantal view would say, covenantally, yes, they have. So it all ultimately comes back down to the issue of covenant. I mean, it, you'll also hear, one thing you'll also hear is, is a decent argument that, that uh, covenanters deal with a lot is Baptists also don't see circumcision as being any way analogous to uh, baptism because in the Old Testament, only men were circumcised. As in the New Testament, women are expected to carry the sign as well. So there's some debates. How is it a sign if it's going to more people than the first sign was originally going to. So there's debates there. But here is really where our two major disagreements come down to. The nature of the covenant and the sign of the covenant. Who's in the covenant and how does the sign of the covenant operate? And the covenantal view is that children who are born to Christian parents are in the covenant that Peter announced was for God's people and their children. And since baptism is the new circumcision, we need to baptize our new covenant children. That is the, uh, what I think is a fair summation of the covenantal view of baptism. As believers, baptism essentially says, no, faith in Christ is how you get in the new covenant. You need to believe in Christ, and that is when you are united to him in the covenant that he mediates. And so you are not going to receive the sign of the covenant until you prove that you are in the covenant. And the way you prove that is not by lineage, it's by faith. So the ultimate question is, what is it ultimately that enters me into the new covenant? And that is really where the heart of our disagreement is. Now, we have one more disagreement that I'll just share briefly, and then we will conclude with our beautiful unity, and that is we disagree on the mode of baptism. But even here, it's only really a half disagreement because uh, covenantal baptism doesn't think that immersion, where you go all the way under the water, is invalid. They don't say, whoa, you were immersed, that is not a baptism. So it's still accepted, but there's a preferred mode that we disagree on. Pedo-Baptists believe in sprinkling or pouring. And this comes from a whole variety of places. One, they see it as more consistent with the, uh, with the concept of receiving the Spirit. The Spirit comes to us, the Spirit washes us, so the water should come to us, the water should wash us. They see it as being consistent with the Old Testament types of how the blood of the covenant was sprinkled all over the altar, it was sprinkled over the temple, and so the type needs to be sprinkled onto us. As credo-baptists, Baptists uh, believe in immersion, which is where the person goes all the way under the water. And their arguments for that is, one, they would argue that's what the word means. Um, they would also argue that that's the only pattern given in Scripture. And they would say it's more fitting with what baptism is the sign of. All right, Paul says in Colossians, you are buried with him and raised with him. And so our baptisms need to actually have some kind of showcase where we're actually being buried and actually raised. So there's a slight disagreement on the mode. But uh, really, it boils down to the nature of the covenant, the sign of the covenant, and then the mode of baptism. But here's where we agree, and this is where we'll conclude, and this is where it's important. First and foremost, in Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, Jesus said, Go, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's a whole group of religious people out there who baptize in Jesus' name only. They deny the Trinity. One of our most important points of agreement is we are all Trinitarians here. Father, Son, Spirit. We baptize in the Trinitarian name of our triune God. So that's a very important one. Number two, this idea of the sign of the covenant. Now, Presbyterians also believe that the covenant is a seal, which is a means of grace, and just unfortunately, we don't have time to get to that. But we all agree, at least with this concept of a sign. Like, we all agree that baptism is in some way, shape, or form symbolic. 
What we agree it's symbolic of is a little different. Presbyterians would say that it's symbolic of the promises that are made to this child, as Baptists would say it's symbolic of the promises that have already been granted to this person. But we're still ultimately all in agreement that baptism is in some way, shape, or form a sign. It's symbolic. It points to something else. That's what a sign is. If somebody says, where's the exit in this building? And I pointed to that sign. I didn't technically, I, well, that's a bad example because it is right under. But I didn't technically point to the exit. I pointed you to a sign which points you to the actual exit. And we all agree that baptism in some way functions as that. When we see a baptism, all of us are supposed to be pointed to something greater than baptism. Which is things like being washed from sins. Things like being united to Christ, buried and resurrected with Christ. Things like having a new heart, a new nature, being cleansed, being purified. All of us agree that baptism is a sign and a symbol of those new covenant realities. But lastly, here's where our greatest disagreement lies. Our greatest disagreement lies in the gospel itself. What we gather around is we all understand that your baptism is not the gospel. No one is getting saved this morning. We are not here to save, well we are here for that, but that's not what we are guaranteeing by baptism. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which is one of the most important documents for Presbyterians, not every Presbyterian denomination out there formally holds to this confession, but when you look at their confessions, they basically all end up agreeing. And I want to read something important, what they say on baptism. To be contemptuous or neglectful of baptism is a serious sin. And we all agree. However, God's grace and salvation are not so inseparably bound to baptism that people cannot be born anew and saved without it. All having been baptized are certainly not born anew and saved. Presbyterians and Baptists agree your baptism is not your salvation. Your baptism cannot save you. Your baptism never will save you. We agree if you would turn on Romans to Romans chapter 4 that the only thing that can justify you before your holy God is not your baptism but your faith. Romans chapter 4. Let's go back to Abraham. Beginning in verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the works of the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as what is due. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. 
The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted for them as well. What's Paul saying here? What made Abraham right before a holy God? It was not the sign of the covenant. It was his faith. Abraham believed God and God then credited righteousness to him. And Paul says the reason that that happened to Abraham and the reason that happened to David and the reason it happened before Abraham's circumcision was so that all of us, Jew and Gentile, could alike see that God made Abraham saved, God justified him apart from those covenantal workings. So that is why we gather around the same confession and we confess here at Redeemer Christian Fellowship, your baptism cannot save you. Your circumcision cannot save you. You are only justified before a holy God by placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. You cannot perform ceremonial duties and make yourself right before God. And our proof is that is Abraham was justified before there were any ceremonial duties to do. There was no such thing as the Mosaic Covenant. Obey the Mosaic Covenant and you shall be saved, Abraham. Be circumcised and you shall be saved, Abraham. Abraham believed, he was saved, and then the covenant and the works came after. So all of us agree on that foundational principle, on that gospel issue, that if you want to be made right before a holy God, you will not find that in baptismal waters. You will not find that in covenant obedience. You will not find that in ceremony and church attendance. You will find that only by a union with Christ through faith and faith alone. We all agree on the gospel here. That you are justified by faith apart from your baptism. Just to, make, to prove that one final time, I love the way Paul says it. Let's conclude with 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For anybody who wants to dare mix baptism with the gospel, Paul has a message in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at what he said his mission was ultimately to do. Part of the Great Commission was to baptize. It's huge, it's important, it's part of discipleship. But Paul still sees enough of a separation between baptism and the gospel that he is able to say this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize. I did not come here to baptize you. Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Baptism is not the gospel. Baptism will not save you. And that is why Paul said, I have not come ultimately to baptize. We should baptize. And he did baptize some people. He says it earlier in the chapter. I did baptize some people. But the heart and soul of my mission was to give you what can actually save you, which is not your baptism. It's the gospel. I came not to baptize, but to preach. In conclusion, I found uh, one pastor that I really, really admire and respect who pastors a church just like ours. And although he has baptistic leanings and he prefers the baptismal, the baptistic understanding of the new covenant, they perform paedo-baptism in their church. And he gave three reasons why his church does this. And he says, number one, it honors families and members already in the church who are paedo-baptists and whom we'd have to ask to take their precious little ones born into our community elsewhere to be baptized. 
He said, number two, it honors Christian families who are covenantal paedo-baptists who may move to our town. We are the only evangelical church in our community, and I personally believe if we are to be an evangelical community church, which is still an integral church form in rural New England, we should attempt as best we can to provide a place of unity for evangelicals in our community. And number three, most importantly, by erasing a division over baptism, we create a greater unity around that which is most and of first importance, the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. The question I continue to ask myself is this. If Jesus himself welcomes Pado baptists into his arms based on their profession of faith in him, who am I to be stricter than Jesus? Of course, all churches have to create an extra strictness for local church membership, but my conviction is that these extras should be minimal. And I thought that was a good summary of what we're doing here. We are coming around the gospel. We are coming around and understanding that who Christ Jesus is, who our triune God is, and how we are made right by him. And we all have perfect agreement on that issue. 